Hi, this is Andy Stanley, your host. Welcome to a new episode of The Adoption Files. Today, I have with me the fabulous Lena Venegas. Lena is an MSW, which is a master in social work. She identifies as transracial and transnational displaced person. Her lived experience has motivated her to train, speak, and consult on trauma, mental health, adoption, and suicide. Thank you so much for being here today, Lena. Thank you so much for having me here. Having me here. It's an honor to be here. And I love that. I love what you're doing with your podcast. So I'm really grateful to be here and be connected with you. Oh, thank you. I, I cannot express enough. People will probably hear my voice. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you. I, I follow Lena on social media. She does amazing work on behalf of displaced people and transracial adoptees and just the work that you do is so impressive and so inspirational that I've just been really excited to have you here on the show today so thank you thank you so much that's really nice to hear I appreciate that oh it I what you're doing makes a difference and I think that's wonderful so would you um, mind sharing a little bit about yourself with the audience Sure, you you gave me a nice introduction. So I also wanted to add to the introduction that I'm also a suicide loss. Um, I've been impa impacted by suicide loss. So that has kind of framed a lot of the work that I do. It's really, um, it's been so profound that that's where I found myself working in terms of adoption, um, trauma, grief, loss, mental health, and suicide. Because that's an area where there's not enough support. It's not really talked about. So my lived experience has really informed that. And I do support adoptive people. And I deal with that every day, all day as well. So, um, you know, that's not something that happens in a bubble. It's happening all the time. It's like that statistic of us being four times more likely to attempt suicide than non-adoptive people. I'm definitely finding that to be true. And probably it's probably higher than um, what that number is. That's an old study. It's a very small um, group of people and it's a very um, specific group of people. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, that's huge. So that's why I talk about that. Um, I'll also mention that I was, um, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and I was sold to a white Jewish couple in the Midwest. So um, I, I, you know, was taken to the Midwest and that's where I, um, that's where I grew up. And um, so I, I also identify as a, a bought and sold person and a victim and survival of the global adoption trade. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people may be uncomfortable hearing you describe it in that terms, but truly when a human being is provided in exchange for money, that's trafficking. <laughs> so it completely we, is. <laughs> yeah, we can dress it up in all kinds of euphemisms and but it doesn't change the reality of of what is happening. And especially for you being brought from another country, I, I'm also a transnational adoptee mm -hmm. and there's a degree of loss, I think, that uh, most people don't understand. And especially for transracial adoptees, whether they're transnational or not, there's another layer of loss there that is ignored by so much of the population. And there's a lot of stigma 
in communities of color when it comes around mental health care. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you've encountered a lot in the work that you do? I mean, I think the the conversation's becoming greater, you know, like everybody's realizing the importance of mental health. Um, so I feel like the stigma is lessening. Um, but I think there's stigma all over in every community regarding mental health and trauma and suicide. So, I mean, I, I see it across the board. It could be different socioeconomic, different ethnicities. It's it's across the board, I would say, definitely. Okay. Yeah, I guess because I grew up in a medical family. Sure, definitely. For, for yeah. me, I probably am seeing things through a, a, a different narrower perspective. So thank you. Yeah, I yeah. appreciate that because that's true. I know a lot of people just from all kinds of different backgrounds. And then when it comes to adoption specifically, people seem to think we're supposed to just be like super happy all the time. Yeah. Yeah. People think they have a, they're doctorated to the propaganda of like us being saved. This is a better life. Our mother loved us so much that she gave us up we're lucky, we're chosen, all of these things. And when they say those things and, you know, promote those things, they're erasing the grief, the trauma and the profound loss that we've experienced. So we're not only told how to be, but the loss and the grief and the trauma silence. And if we do speak up and say adoption's trauma, it's really wild the pushback that will happen. We're called ungrateful, we're called angry, um, told to kill ourselves, um, asked, aren't you glad you weren't aborted and a lot of other mean things. So it's like, we're kind of stuck in this no-win situation. We either, you know, follow the propaganda and, you know, spew that propaganda, but that's harming us, right? Like if it's going to harm us, right? Or we're going to talk, we're going to speak out and share a lived experience and there's going to be immense pushback. There's going to be immense pushback, even from people who think or identify as being liberal or being progressive or being, I'm someone that supports adopted people's rights. And then as soon as we speak out, it's quite evident that they're performative and they do not support adopted people's rights. Yeah, I've seen a lot of conversations about that on Twitter, where the conversation ends with the progressive <laughs> thinking person saying, but it won't be like that for us. Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> the like exceptionalism, the yeah. exceptionalism is mind blowing and the narcissism in that statement. Yeah. It's just like, okay, we're going to gloss over everything else because we are mm -hmm. so superior to all of these yeah. other people. Exactly. And yeah. It's, and so we talk about the narrative. Mm -hmm and how that can be very detrimental to an adopted person's mental health because yeah. we either have to repress and dissociate mm -hmm. you know compartmentalize i tell people i have an airplane hanger full of <laughs> containers of just all of the stuff that i was supposed to and am supposed to never explore it's all just supposed to stay boxed up and shoved into this cavernous yeah. void. So we either do that, which as you said, is detrimental. It isn't like one of the definitions of depression, something like anger turned inward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that could be a good definition of it. 
Yeah. 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 So you have no place to put it. You turn it inward. Mm-hmm. Or as you said, we speak out and we find our voices. And it reminds me of, I think it's a Japanese proverb that says that the nail that sticks out, <clears throat> excuse mm-hmm. me, gets hammered down. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And hammering down a nail is a pretty violent act in many ways. It is. And so when you try to, you know, hammer down the adoptee to prevent them from speaking out, it's, it can be taken as like an act of violence against us. Yeah, it's an act of violence and it's another level of trauma. So it's like we've already experienced the trauma of being separated from our families and all the other losses and grief. And then we're being traumatized and exposed to trauma on a daily basis by society, by uh, family members, by loved ones, by friends, by pretty much you name it. So, I mean, that is a trauma and it goes unrecognized and that is going to impact um, our mental health. We had talked a little bit before in in a previous conversation about the isolation Mm -hmm. of being an adopted, displaced person. Could you explain a little bit about what you perceive as the isolation? Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't speak for all adopted people. So I'm just going to kind of generalize from my experience and people that I've spoken with or people that I've, you know, listened to or supported. So isolation would be, you know, losing um, racial mirroring, you know, that'd be a transracial adoptive person losing genetic mirroring. And that could go for transnational, that could go for domestic, that could go for transracial. Um, it would be not being around people like us, not being, uh, not having our trauma validated, you know, being constantly told to be grateful that you're rescued. Um, that's, we're being forced into a situation where we're not being seen. So it's for, further pushing us away and it's othering us. Um, you know, being, you know, being cut off from our whole life trajectory, our country, language, culture, that's an isolation too. There's all that loss. Um, being the only adopted person around other people, that's also isolation because people think they know us. People think, you know, because they know an adopted person or they watched a movie or they read a book or they adopted or they have an adopted sibling or they're married to someone adopted or they once knew a neighbor from you know, from where they live or someone from college, you know, so it's like everyone feels they're an expert on us, but really they have never lived the, lived that experience. So they're not an expert. They're using their proximity to us. So it's like, that is also very isolating being the only adopted person. And then you come into community with people and they want to speak for you and tell you what it, what has happened to you. And then you realize like, not only do I not look like these people, not only is my, you know, are my ancestors different than these people, but these people are not safe for me to be around, you know? So it's like, maybe we back away from that group of people because that's not going to be safe. And so that's isolation, isolating too. And as young children, you know, who don't have people that look like them, maybe aren't safe at home or dealing with, you know, racism if they're transracially adopted. It's just going to create um, a lot of isolation because it's like, where do I go where I'm safe? Where do I go where I'm seen? Where do I go where I'm validated? I'm always being told how I feel, how I should look, what my lived experience is, um, what my family was like. And that's all based on propaganda. So it's like it's constant isolation, um, just not not feeling like one fits in, always being the person that seemed to 
um, people love to out adaptive people and just say, oh, this person's adapted. And that's not like really an appropriate thing to do. That's someone's lived experience and they shouldn't be, that shouldn't be shared for them. If they want to share that, that's fine. But you become very other because everybody, you know, loves adoption and that story. So it's like people treat you very differently. Um, and it's like, even as an adult, people seem to look at us as little children. Like we're, we don't have autonomy. We can't speak for ourselves. We don't know our lived experience. So it's, I would say it's a life of just, it's very isolating. And, and as like young children, we maybe don't have any adopted friends and we don't have the language to talk about it either. So it's like, and if we don't have support, we don't know what we don't know. Right. But as we get older, the hope is that we connect with other adoptive people. So we're less isolated because then we're going to share, like we're going to have differences and similarities and it's going to be good for us to be around people that have that lived experience with us. Because if not, if we're always around people that are not adopted, you know, we don't, they don't completely understand us. They're never going to, even as well-meaning as they are, they can get it only so much. Just like I can only get someone's lived experience that I haven't lived. I can only get it so much, no matter how much I read, no matter how much I listen, no much, no matter how much I set my ego aside, I can never understand that experience I didn't live. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I mean, that just, that brings up so much, so many things. I, and one of the, you know, so I'm trying to kind of like parse what you've said. And I know one of the things that I first thought was we have all these things told for us, yeah. how we're supposed to feel, how we're supposed to be. And a common response that I receive from people when I object to that is that they're protecting us mm -hmm. and that they would just want to make us feel better, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it took me a long time to realize that, no, they're protecting themselves and they're making themselves feel better because they're not actually hearing or seeing what I'm saying and they are not interested in taking the time to figure it out either. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's one thing that I see a lot of, not just in my own experience, but with other adoptees, people responding to them that way. And adoptees will often respond to other adoptees in that way because we haven't been given the language or the tools and society has so much invested in keeping us indoctrinated you know, in having us internalize a lot of that narrative. And so that's one of the things that came up for me when you're talking. And another thing is how threatening people find it when adoptees find other adoptees and start talking to each other. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I'm late discovery and I couldn't figure out until after I learned about my adoption. I couldn't figure out why my adoptive parents were so determined to keep me away from adopted people. Mm -hmm. wow. You know, and so what I heard about adoption was basically that adoptees were strange and dangerous wow. and questionable because of their parentage. And so like my, what I took in was Oh, how sad that these people had to be adopted, but how lucky they are that they've been adopted. Mm -hmm. And hopefully being adopted will fix whatever's wrong with them. Mm -hmm. So then when I learned I was adopted, I was like, well, no wonder I felt so terrible about myself my whole life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's, 
Yeah, the isolation, everything that you said, and that kind of segues into the idea of belonging as well. Like, how do you, how have you seen how people may struggle to feel a sense of belonging? I mean, that's huge. I mean, I think that's a, a big struggle. I mean, I think that's what everyone's trying, you know, like adaptive people are trying to do. Um, because when you've been so othered and so isolated and forced to conform um, and assimilate to an identity that's not yours and everything of yours is erased and ignored and not validated. I mean, it, it's really hard to find out where do I belong? How do I belong? And it's that um, imposter syndrome, most, you know, that kicks in a lot, like a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of self-doubt, um, you know, self-esteem, self-worth. I think it's really hard. I think like the key um, you know, from my experience and what I've observed and seen, I think connection, connecting with other adaptive people is like, for me, it was like the first time I felt like I actually belonged, you know, and that was a long, I mean, I wish that had been like earlier in my life. That was like, it's not that long ago, you know, it was like probably 15 years ago, you know, so that's really sad if we think about that. And then there's some people that never connect with adoptive people and that's really sad too like the belonging is going to be really hard because it's that feeling of never fitting in you know not fitting into our adoptive families not maybe fitting into our families if we reconnect with them um we're always feeling like the outsider you know because it's like we've been tried to be molded to fit this identity and this person and we're never going to live up to that because that's not who we are. So we get so many horrible messages, which are going to make it really hard to feel like we do belong, even if we do, you know, um, we could have our own families, you know, we could have friends, relationships, but I think that belonging issue is going to be a core issue that many of us struggle with. Even if we're like, we've done the work, it's still hard when we've receive so many violent and harmful and manipulative and gaslighting messages. It's just really, um, it's, it's really inhumane to take someone else's child, sell them to strangers, erase their name, erase everything about them, and then force them to fit into someone else's family with someone else's lineage in a different place and all these things. We're never going to live up to that. And then that's, and then to add in, why did um, these people adopt? Generally, like 85% of the time is due to infertility. And most of the time, from what I've seen, adoptive parents, caregivers, however you want to phrase it, they haven't dealt with the infertility loss. And that's a huge loss that needs to be dealt with. But when that's not dealt with, then it's more placed on us. And we don't we don't really belong in strangers' families with the with the fake name, with this identity, right? So it's like that belonging issues. We're constantly reminded how we don't belong even in this family. Yeah, I I mean I think that's really huge, and I've had like my adoptive family say, "But you belong to us." Yeah, and, ownership, ownership, yeah. kind of too. Yeah, yes, yeah. possession. And- and the whole idea, you know, I grew up hearing, I can't believe a child of mine would, I can't believe any child of mine would like this, behave that way, do those things. And it wasn't until I went back to college and was in my 40s that my abnormal psych <laughs> professor, who was my mentor, 
took me aside and said, you, your parent, your adoptive parent was negating you. Yeah. You know, every time she did that, she negated you because, mm -hmm. because I was having panic attacks and I was having a difficult time getting through university. And mm -hmm. so that whole idea that we're adopted for reasons that have nothing to do with us and trauma that our adopted parents may not have dealt with or um, strong religious beliefs or societal beliefs that makes them feel like they're entitled to a child or that it's um, some sort of benevolent, godly act of saviorism. Mm -hmm. uh, they haven't dealt with their stuff, but then that whole idea that we're somehow going to fulfill this fantasy mm -hmm. of, and we come into it, like you said, we come into it with our own temperaments, our own mm -hmm. talents, our own, you know, genetic makeup and, you know, maybe a predisposition to certain diseases or mm -hmm. mental health issues. And the way the system's set up is, I don't know, it just infuriates me that it's, it's like there's this fetishization of the adopted person and of parenting in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, and you know this much more, there's this fetishization when it comes to transracial adoptees mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. And that has got to weigh on transracial adoptees. I can only say that observing from the outside you know yeah. i can't imagine what that is like when you know people shop for the cheapest countries to adopt from yeah. or the easiest countries to adopt from mm -hmm. or uh, because they want to be a influencer on instagram mm -hmm. and show what a yeah. godly wonderful awesome person they are mm -hmm. it's just i don't know it infuriates me yeah <laughs> makes me so angry that another so I'm, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole because I could do that all day <laughs> I'm sure that's another episode <laughs> just yeah. like yeah. fuming just if you could like yeah. make fuming audible that would be <laughs> what's happening definitely yeah. yeah so because on the podcast we I generally talk about laws we're not really going to get into a lot into like the laws of international mm -hmm. adoption and things today, but yeah. I am active in different groups that are trying to get unrestricted access for adoptees to their birth certificates and their adoption files and things like that. And I have observed the discouragement, the despair, the depression, the fear, the guilt, the longing there are so many emotions involved in seeking out our identities and wanting to know where we belong and trying to pierce through that isolation. And the laws, the way that they're written, are so, they place such a burden on adoptive people. Mm -hmm. and so I was just wondering your perspective on how the laws contribute to poor mental health outcomes for adopted people. And when I say adopted people, I want to let the listeners know, I recognize that the way the laws are written, 
if you're a step parent adoptee, you lose your parents' name and identity. If it happens when you're young enough, you may not know who your one of your parents' families are. Uh, or you may not be told that you're a step-parent adoptee and find out when you're older. Uh, a foster to adopt, you may have known who you were until you were nine or 10 or 11. And then suddenly you're having this false birth certificate and this false narrative imposed on you. So I'm, I'm recognizing that it's not just people adopted as very young children that the mm -hmm. laws affect. Uh, but this is primarily about the difficulty for people adopted at a very young age. Yeah, I mean, the the impacts are massive to mental health. And that's also something that's not talked about. So I appreciate that we're having this conversation because the conversation needs to be had when our birth certificates are are sealed or we're not able to have access to our birth certificates. We don't know where we come from. We may not know, we may not be able to find our family and our parents because the names are erased. And if the people that adopted us have the information and don't tell us, well, we can't get that information. So that's going to be another othering. That's another issue dealing with belonging. That's a violation of human rights. We should know where we come from, who we come from. That's like a bare minimum that every human being should have access to. Um, in terms of citizenship, that's another area of the laws where um, adopted international and transnational adopted people are adopted. They're experiencing situations where they're realizing that they're not citizens. And this is how I'm speaking. I'm going to speak for the United States because I live here in the United States and I can only speak to that experience. But so adopted people and there's been articles posted about this. So you could Google it, you know, and go down that rabbit hole. But there have been situations where adopted people have been deported to the country they were born in. And if they don't speak the language, you know, they have family here, they grew up here, their life is here, even though their life was erased, this is what they know. So that's going to have massive impacts. And there have actually been some adopted people who have died from suicide once they were deported. So that's that's a huge, huge issue. The other issue of the laws I would like to touch on is rehoming. And I hate that term, but I don't have another one. So adoptive parents are able to get rid of children if it's not working out for them. So they can be, you know, just basically thrown out again, and then someone else can adopt them. And that's another level of trauma, but there are not laws that are in place in terms of our rights. The adoptive parent has all the power to keep us or put us back into the system. Conversely, adoptive people don't have the same rights to annul adoption. We deserve the right to be able to annul our adoptions. We are, um, this is our life. We have autonomy over our lives. If adoptive parents can discard us, can send us back into the system, we deserve to have that right too. Um, and that's not something that if you talk to attorneys, they don't really know. They don't know how to do it and they're perplexed because I've talked to attorneys just to kind of see what do they know. And they look at me like I have to explain adoption to them because they don't understand why would I want to do this? Why would adoptive people want to do this? And so the thing that's hard there is so many people working in the system 
meaning attorneys, they don't even understand adoption and they're working with adoptive people and facilitating adoption. So that's a huge, they're complicit in this system and they don't know what they're doing, but we do deserve the right to be able to annul our adoptions. I mean, if you think of children that are raised by their biological parents, they're able to, I can't think of the name of the word. What is it when they, that when they're before 18 and they, oh, they can be emancipated emancipated and that's not something that we have um so that would be something that we deserve when we when we when our birth certificates are changed and the adopters names are put onto our birth certificates we also lose legal relationships with our families so we're not recognized as as their family so that means that could be have ramifications in terms of like estates or wills or just in general, we're not legally related to them. So that's something that's a huge, that's gonna impact our mental health. Because if we, a lot of us, and this is a common thing, a lot of adaptive people are in strained or estranged relationships with the people that adopted them. And they want to be legally related to their family. That's gonna have huge impacts if I'm tied to people that bought me that I no longer want to have a relationship with and the system is telling me you're related to them. So those people could come to me, they could sue me legally, they could come for grandparenting time legally. There's many things they could do to us when I'm saying I don't want to be in this situation and there are no, there's no law or there's no thought of us in terms of our safety and our protection. We deserve to be able to make a choice and say, hey, I want to be unadapted. I want to be legally related to my family. And I know one way that people can, one of the loopholes you can get out of that, and this is a really dumb loophole, is if you find, if you reconnect with your family, your biological family, and they adopt you. But that's ridiculous because if I'm saying I don't want to be adopted, why would I have someone else adopt me even if that is my family? I don't want to be adopted. So that loophole is hard because very few, few people have biological family, their parents still alive. They may not be able to find them. There's different countries, you know, so it's like that's not an easy solution, but that's one that I've heard as a solution. So, I mean, we've talked about a bunch of different things in the law where it's going to impact adoptive people how can it not we're not viewed as equal citizens you know our basic human rights are taken away here in adoption so that's going to impact how we're treated in society it's going to impact what we're able to do you know so it, it has a huge ramification so I'm glad that you brought up the mental health connection because I think a lot of people don't make that connection in terms of the laws and I hope that people listening I hope we get some people that work um, in the legal system, that are attorneys, that write laws, politicians that listen to this, to hear that their laws really could be um, detrimental and they could cause people to, I mean, there's been suicide linked to it with the citizenship issue. So it's like, this is not a small thing. And, and the bottom line is we as the adopted and displaced people are not at all considered it's in the laws. It's always about the adult that wants this fantasy and wants this dream of, you know, having a child or parenting or however you want to term it. But there is no, and, and the laws just show like how we're not considered at all. We're not even an afterthought. 
So we have to figure out these, these legal loopholes. And there is only one attorney that I know in the United States that specializes in this. And that's Gregory Luce from Adoptee Rights Law. Um, and he is very overworked. He's one person. How can he possibly, you know, there's so many adopted people, you know what I mean? And so he's the one, one of the few that I've actually talked to that gets it, but all the other attorneys that I've talked to, and these are like attorneys that are seasoned, you know, that went to the best schools or whatever, have all this, they're quote successful. They have no idea. They don't know that um, our birth certificates are sealed and falsified. They didn't know about the citizenship issue either. So people working in this system have absolutely no idea. So there's a disconnect because how can they be helpful in a system? They have no idea how it's working. Yeah, exactly. And the laws are so convoluted. I have tried yeah. reading through them. And so I'm not a lawyer, but I have family members, like married into family members mm -hmm. who are conversant with, with law, but primarily with criminal law. From them, I've been able to at least learn how crucial it is to really pay attention to the actual wording of the laws mm -hmm. and follow all the little bitty links and numbers that are listed and things because there are so many obstacles for a, just a regular person who's never dealt with the legal system that can cause so much heartache. You'll look at states where you have to apply in court for a judge to decide if you should be able to see your identifying information mm -hmm. and people will read this law and they'll think that because it says the court may release documents they don't understand that the word may leaves it completely up to the discretion of the authority figure mm -hmm. and then when we look at the obstacles to you know pursuing our identities from a mental health perspective you know in human services they talk about obstacles you know to access to resources and there are so many aspects of it but one that i don't think a lot of people talk about is we live in a society that is saturated in systemic racism and that It's very, fr it's scary for just like a non, you know, it's scary for a, a white person to have to go to court mm -hmm. and stand in front of an authority figure and ask for something that belongs to them. Yeah. How much more difficult is it in a system where people of color have really good reasons to not trust authority figures and then to tell them that you have to go to a courthouse and present yourself in court in front of who knows what this person is like that's sitting up there at the front of the courtroom. So I know people who have not pursued trying to get their own information mm -hmm. because the idea of having to do that is so crushing because of the experience that they have lived in their community 
seeing what's happening to people uh you know and then there's other you know bars to access to there's why why put myself through that if i don't think anybody's going to listen to me mm-hmm. you know why spend the money why take the time off from work or why travel the however many miles of distance it's going to be the fears of rejection are strong mm-hmm. adopted people and that's just setting in some ways it can feel like it's just setting yourself up for another incidence of rejection yeah i mean one other thing i want to touch on there is money not every adopted person has access to money and so many of us live in poverty you know we don't have our basic needs met so it's like we can't even think about hiring an attorney let alone writing a check for a motion, let alone if we don't have access to support, we might not be in a space where we can even set foot in a court because going to court is traumatic, even in the best circumstance. Um, So in terms, I'll give you an example. Um, When I I had to go before a judge, a white woman, um, and I had to ask to get my name changed back to my real name. She could have said no. I had to pay to go do that. And I'm privileged that I was able to do that. But that's just like part of the reality we're living with. And that's a small portion of it. It's ridiculous that I have to go before a judge that doesn't know me, that probably doesn't understand adoption. Maybe that person is an adoptive parent. So they could be biased towards me, you know, and have all these preconceived notions and be indoctrinated. And I have to just ask, can I have this name back? That's very inhumane I shouldn't have to pay and go before some stranger who doesn't know me or my lived experience or understand it to get my name my actual name back yeah and names are important to yeah. uh, you know to everyone you know, and I think adopted people we feel it even more strongly because it mm-hmm. is for a lot of us our adoptive names are like and I can't speak for everyone that's why I say yeah, of course yes yeah, for sure people I've talked to uh, a lot of us, it's like a costume that we've had mm-hmm. to wear our whole lives and that we don't, that doesn't fit. Like mm-hmm. I, I've always, even before I knew that I was adopted, I've always hated the name that I was given. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> yeah, and, and the thing is that, you know, when we talk about as children, the difference in what we're able to articulate and understand, and then as adults and people have this emphasis on, well, when you turn 18, or when you turn 21, or when you mm-hmm. turn 24, or whatever your state says that you may request, mm-hmm. in all but 14 states, that may request means good luck. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so, the you know, a lot of the damage has already been done. Like a lot mm-hmm. of that mental health impact has already been felt. And so by the time we get to that point, and that's we're already carrying a huge amount mm-hmm. of stuff and you know you talked about going before a judge mm-hmm. to get your name changed yeah i i was born in the uk and i discovered that i could have changed my name very simply mm-hmm. by deed poll when i turned mm-hmm. when i turned 18 but i wasn't told that i was adopted mm-hmm. So now the process to change my name would cost me so much 
money and so much hassle and so much time that as much as I cringe every time I have to use my legal name, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I just can't, I don't have the resources to be able to change it. And in the UK, they'll allow you to receive your adoption file and a copy of your birth certificate when you turn 18. Wow. But you have, if you were born before 1972, I think it is, you have to see a counselor to prove that you're of sound mind. Wow. How would you be of sound mind when you were, you know, taken out of everything you know? You know what I mean? And what does sound mind even mean? I know. Like, what does that mean? You know, yeah. like, wh where do you get that? And even if we're not, we deserve that. H however you want to define it. That's like, that's again, we're not treated as human beings with the same rights that non-adapted people are treated. Yeah. And I was just like, so I'm going to have to go in there and pretend I'm not angry at yeah. being lied to for 33 years. <laughs> I have to go in there and pretend... But the beautiful thing was at the time, there were only two counselors in the United States qualified by the UK to provide oh. the services. So they suggested I fly to England because if I come to England, all I have to do is go to uh, the council and just ask for it. And I'm thinking, so I, I have no money. I've got two little kids. I'm supposed to just hop on a plane. Yeah. And for transnational adoptees, you know, you were born in Colombia. Mm -hmm. I at least was born in a country that speaks English. Yeah. Yeah. I have that barrier. Yeah. Yeah. And whose legal system is, is sort of familiar because U.S. legal system is kind of, you know, loosely based on the English government. But for you... If you, you know, to have to go to Colombia and be able to speak the language and navigate the bureaucracy. <laughs> That's a huge barrier. That's a huge barrier. Korea or wherever it's going to be, those are all barriers. And in Russia, all these systems are different. So it's like when we talk about the laws, it's a bigger conversation because each country has different laws and different processes and different bureaus and different places you have to go through. So, so often we need someone to help translate, someone to help navigate. And it's like, that costs money, it's time. And if our basic needs are not being met, met or we're struggling with addiction, we're struggling with mental health, we're just struggling with suicidal ideation, suicide attempts or life, you know, like, how are we going to have the capacity to do that? That's a big, big barrier. Yeah, it's it's huge. And I believe in this thing that I call adoptee silence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and that is that phenomenon that kept people in the greater culture think that adopted people are just happy and it's all great and if they're not then it's their problem they have a problem it's not the system it's not the adoptive family it's there's something wrong with the adoptee i and uh, so there's this silence but in adoptee only spaces that's where you hear these conversations about people who 
who won't tell people they're adopted because it's just so traumatic and depressing for them the responses they receive from people mm -hmm. uh, people who tell everybody they're happy even though they're not because they know that if they don't people are going to harass them people who are searching for their families or are in reunion who haven't told their adoptive families because of like fear and guilt and shame and confusion uh, people like you said who are estranged so there's all these conversations that go on mm -hmm. in these spaces because it's not safe to have them mm -hmm. in other spaces and it can be hard even for it to be safe for adoptees with other adopted people definitely you know? yeah so it's really um it's just really hard and so you know you're talking about suicide this is September which you know we have a whole month dedicated to suicide prevention awareness it should be all year long but mm -hmm. we have this month and we've talked about a lot of the different things about why we might feel like adoptees are overrepresented one of the things that you talked about I in our previous conversation was forced assimilation and I was hoping if you feel comfortable talking a little bit about what you mean by forced assimilation. Yeah, forced assimilation is, it's for any adoptive person. We're taken from our family, from our moms, from our dads, taken from them, and we're forced to assimilate into a different environment, into a strange family. Like, we don't know these people, so they are strangers. Um, it could be a different country. It could be a different state. It could be a different climate. Um, different language, different religion. I mean, it could it'd be completely, completely different. And we're forced to accept that and be how, you know, forced to um, become that culture, that, um, that family that, you know, learn the language, become a part of that religion. And everything that we knew before is completely erased generally. So, so say I was adopted at, you know, three years old. I had a whole life before. And then here I'm in a strange home in a strange country with strange people with a strange name, everything's changed. And now I have to function in this environment. That is torture. That is trauma. And that is violence. And that right there is going to explain why we're overrepresented. You can't take you know, you can't take somebody out of their life. I mean, it's happening. Take them out of their life and expect them to become someone else and expect them to have no trauma, have no grief, have no loss, have no feelings about it, um, have no anger. It's just not going to happen. It's inhumane to do so. So that if we think about the loss and what that child's experiencing through their through their eyes, what is that like? that explains why we're overrepresented. Thank you. It's an adverse childhood experience. Yeah, but you, you know, I mean, it on the ACE. No, I mean, I'm hoping that it's going to become there. It's also complex trauma. Like adoption isn't a one-time event. So it's continual trauma. We might be, you know, we're experiencing as transracial adoptive people, racism in the adoptive families or racism around their friends and people at school. Um, we might be 
very often we're abused by the people that adopt us. That's a repeating trauma. It's not a one-time event, you know? So we have all these things compounded. So that's a recipe for over-representation or risk factor for addiction, for suicide, for being underhoused, for having difficulty in relationships, for having, you know, struggles with eating. Um, I don't like the term self-harm at all. I don't have a better term, but for that as well. So you just name all these things. It's going to be a recipe for that. It's a risk factor, right? Um, it's also celebrated. Adoption is one of the most celebrated traumas. Um, oh, this is awesome. This is beautiful. You were rescued. Um, you were given a better life. Your mom loved you so much. Aren't you glad you weren't aborted? You're chosen. Um, and it's a silent trauma. It's an ignored trauma. No one has ever said to me until I was like probably 30, maybe it was like 40, where they said, you know, I'm sorry, this is, and they validated, like, this is actually a trauma. Yeah. And to go all that time and to be gaslit and manipulated and bullied, that is going to impact things. And, and that's going to lead to overrepresentation. I mean, it makes complete sense, you know, that we would be overrepresented. However, we, however, adopted and displaced and fostered and trafficked people, um, hope or react to the situation of being separated from their families, whether it's adoption, whether it's foster care, whatever it is, a group home, the troubled teen industry, I hate that term. Um, however we live makes sense given the situation. It is not us that is pathological. It is not us that has something wrong with us. It is society. It is the system. However we function, it makes sense that we would have suicidal ideations. It's hard to live in a world where it's like you don't have the same basic human rights. You're not validated. Your trauma is celebrated. You're talked over. You're pathologized. It makes sense that, you know, maybe we are addicted to substances, I mean, it makes complete sense. We want to regulate our nervous systems and we don't have support. So we are thrown into overrepresentation. That is what adoption does. It's not going to create people that are having strong bonds with people. I mean, we can't bond with strangers. We're not meant to bond with strangers. So everything that we're being forced to assimilate into and to be is against our biology. It's against what we're supposed to do. We're not, we're not made to be taken from our family, given to strangers, and then having to fulfill this whole other identity and life. That's not going to be um, helpful for mental health. That's not going to be helpful for physical health. That's not going to be helpful for spiritual health, sexual health, any of it. So it makes complete sense that we're overrepresented. And that would be an aha moment for people that are listening that are feeling um, angry at listening to this and thinking like, well, adoption's great. Maybe I adopted, maybe I want to adopt. Maybe my friend is adopted. Maybe I know an adopted person. And this is what we're saying. This is what the evidence is showing. You can't, you can't look away from the evidence. You just can't. So it's like, this is the aha moment to think, hmm, maybe I need to rethink and connect some dots as to why adopted people are overrepresented and why am I so frustrated and angry with hearing this? Yeah. 
do I have this need? Do I have this selfish, ego-driven need to parent? And if I do, at what cost? Am I above family preservation? Am I above complex trauma? Am I above intergenerational trauma? Am I above um, forced assimilation? Am I above the rights of other families and other children? And if you think that you are, and you think that you're the exception, I would pause. I would listen to adaptive people. I would not take just this to be true. We're two people. We don't speak for other adaptive people. Um, we are experts in it, but there are so many other experts. Go down that rabbit hole, research it. And if you have a reason why you're looking to adapt, maybe you dealt with infertility or dealing with it, please go talk to a professional or seek help in whatever way you can heal from that, recover from it, deal with it, come to terms with it before you introduce someone else's child to make up for your loss and to fill your void. This is like an aha moment. Like I hope people are listening, taking this in. It's uncomfortable. It's depressing. It's tragic. But this could be an aha moment where we could start advocating for adaptive people, where we could start thinking about laws, where we could start thinking about suicide, addiction. Let's start connecting dots and let's start amplifying the voices and not speaking over or for people whose lived experience we do not have. Yes. applaud. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank yeah, you. I love that. I mean, there were so many things that you said there that are so important. And I know that it brings up a few things for me. And I almost hesitate to say them because I feel like that was just so perfect. I just want you to leave can it say, right, please add whatever because right I'm there. one person. I don't speak for you. I don't speak oh. for other people. So if there's stuff you'd like to add, please do. This is... Well, the conversation. Yeah, the questions I want to say. So one of the brilliant solutions that the adoption industry has come up with to address some of the things that you bring up is that we'll just have the adoptive parents catch that baby as it emerges from its parents' body. And that will eliminate any possible trauma that this child could experience because they don't have it before. Everything that they're experiencing is just this tremendous outpouring of love that they're receiving from these adoptive parents. And so what are you talking about? We've solved the problem. We're pre-birth matching. We're, we're letting the mother pick out the people who, you know, to me, that's like, that's like saying that a marriage is going to last forever be because of the initial like infatuation <laughs> that yeah. two people might feel for each other, yeah. you know? I mean, plus the social workers and stuff that talked to my adoptive family didn't catch the fact that my maternal, I use that term very loosely, <laughs> Yeah, this is my adoptive maternal that her father was a violent alcoholic who almost beat his mother to death or his wife to death that 
my adoptive mom was OCD and would eventually uh, become an alcoholic herself while I was still a child. Mm -hmm. My adoptive father did not want to adopt. And he was also the child of an alcoholic Mm -hmm. who died in a tragic accident when he accidentally set himself on fire in the hospital. Uh, Like there was all this dysfunction in my adoptive family, but that's not the face they presented to the social workers. Mm -hmm. So this whole like pre-birth matching and the idea that these people who show you their glossy video and pictures of how, you know, the joke is you're going to have a pony in private school. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this, you know, so supposedly that's that just is going to solve the problem we'll just catch that baby we'll cut the umbilical cord we'll take that baby home with us so how would how do you respond when people say well that's how we fix this problem yeah I mean they're just grappling they're like reaching for straws here because there's a whole nine months that happens before the umbilical cord is cut before the baby is pushed out the mother and baby have bonded the baby knows the mother's heartbeat. The baby knows the mother's scent and voice and the other people that are, you know, around. So it's like, there's a whole life and a whole bonding experience that happens nine months prior to a baby being born, you know, and you can't erase, like you just can't erase DNA. You just can't. Um, I mean, those ties and biology holes are so strong and they are for a reason. So it's like being there in the room and doing that is not going to solve anything. It's just kind of like, it's almost, it's sadly humorous because that's just like reaching for straws. Like you're, you're missing the whole point. You're missing biology. You're erasing biology again. You're erasing ancestors. You're erasing the pregnancy. There's a whole nine months that happens. And that's a long time, you know, the bonding, there's so much bonding that happens there. You can even go down the rabbit hole and research that. So being in a room is not going to minimize trauma. It's going to make it more traumatic for the mother. And um, the the coercion that happens with the matching and all that kind of stuff, it's like bribery, coercion, and force that's happening. So you're just basically trying to sugarcoat that and make that look normalize that the pre-matching is coercion that should not be happening we need to be supporting pregnant people and letting them know that they're capable and worthy of raising their own children you know so it's like this this industry is preying on them you know they're doing nothing to support the parenting or the pregnancy they're promising everything but then the moment that the baby is taken from the mother or birthing person the mother they have no care about the mother they're not checking up on the mother seeing how the mother's doing trying to keep that relationship they're not so it's like even just having i like just i can't even and i've seen these videos on social media and i have to turn them off where it shows uh like the adoptive people being in the room with the mom yeah. or the birthing person and taking the baby. I literally cannot watch those because that's me. That's what happened to me. So sitting there and watching that, and I can't imagine being the birthing person. I'm a parent. I have three kids. I cannot imagine bonding with my baby, carrying that baby for nine months and then birthing the baby and then having people that, you know, coerce me and bribe me 
to take my baby and knowing that that baby's out there, having them in the room would just be like, that would feel like a death. It would just, it would so traumatic. It's not even thinking of the birthing person. We shouldn't be encouraging mothers to create these arrangements before the babies are born. Because once you hold that baby, once you see that baby, you're not going to want to hand that baby off. Moms don't freely give their children away or birthing people don't love them so much they give them away. They're coerced the majority of the time. They're forced. They're in desperate situations. Maybe they're children. You know, maybe they're victims of incest. I mean, there's so many reasons. Sexual assault, right? But they're not given the support to even determine you know, and feel confident to raise their own child. So that's like, this is just another level of being predatory and they're trying to package it in a different way. And and it doesn't erase the fact that this child is not going to look like you. No. It may have a completely different temperament, completely different talents. I grew up in a family of very linear thinkers who my creativity was completely baffling to them and unsupported because Sorry. it was you know practical it was mm-hmm. so you can't yeah the whole there's so much and so much that you say about the predatory nature of how you know they're going out and finding people in crisis mm-hmm. and and they're manipulating them mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. amount of money that is spent to adopt in this country if that even a fraction of that was put into uh, providing reproductive health services and affordable child care and affordable housing and job I mean if we just really wanted to make a significant positive change we could just invest a lot of that money into those areas like education and there are so many ways but people don't want to think outside of this box of adoption because it satisfies something in them mm-hmm. and I know my therapist asks me when I'm like stuck in some sort of thing he'll say what purpose does is that serving for you mm-hmm. so if you have a lot of adopted people not all of us but a lot of adopted people and a lot of health statistics and things telling you that adoption, the way we practice it, is not healthy. There are other ways that we can be providing alternative child care, alternative family support, than mm-hmm. taking a child from their families. And then another thing that when you were talking about this, a lot of people are adopted into very religious families. I, my family was devout Catholic. I know some uh, who are adopted into, you know, Baptist families and evangelical families. And that's a whole thing. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I think you listened to one of my podcast episodes where I was just I like, did. Um. Yeah. so these people are told this is God's will for you. This is what you're supposed, this is where you're supposed to be. God had this all planned out for you. This is what I was told. Well, this is where God meant for you to be. This is what, 
you know, God doesn't make mistakes and this is where you're supposed to be. So I did not tell my adoptive mom that I'm bisexual and non-binary until mm -hmm. I was 53. Mm -hmm. And she said, well, why didn't you tell me when you were younger? I don't understand why you didn't tell me. And I said, well, because you would have kicked me out. Mm -hmm. And she, she said, oh, no, I wouldn't have. And I looked at her and I just said, I want you to think about what you just said to me and be honest with me. And I will give her credit for somebody who lied for decades. Mm -hmm. She took a second and she looked at me and she goes, yeah, you're right. I would have. So you also have this mental health, cognitive dissonance, excuse my language, fucked up kind of dogma and you're telling this child who might be trans or who might be lesbian or gay or bisexual or asexual you know I, there are so many identities you know that are not accepted in these religious ideologies and so you have this layer of religious trauma and religious abuse and fear on top of all of that I, I think we probably both know people who are part of like that lgbtq community Definitely. who are adopted who deal with a ton of suicidal ideation and suicide and, mm -hmm. and fear and rejection yeah it's like when you take any intersectionality you can take that intersectionality you can take transracial intersectionality you could take disability there's so many different that we could take you could also take adopted people who become moms who have lost their children to adoption that's another intersection we don't talk about those are all going to be risk factors they're going to create more overrepresentation and a greater risk of suicide attempts suicidal ideations and death from suicide yeah and and i don't think i think it's adopted people in some ways were trained by the narrative and by our adoptive families not all because i've known some people who mm -hmm. say their their adopted parents were very open and very like tried very hard to like fix foods from the country that they came from mm -hmm. and, and make sure they spent time with kids you know, and families from the countries where they came from and mm -hmm. tried to talk about all of it. But I think most of us are kind of trained to not speak and to not seek support. So even when we do look for mental health care, mm -hmm. we're, I think there's a level of resistance that happens a lot because I don't, you know, I don't know if you see that as a practitioner. I feel like also it's scary and it's harmful often to go get help because so often the people that we're going to be seeing in any realm are generally not adoption trauma informed yeah, or competent or whatever you want to call it as. So they can be very harmful to us. And if I'm in crisis and I go to seek someone and they just label me and pathologize me and send me home with medication. And we, and, they, and we don't look at the actual trauma of adoption and all the other traumas on top of that. Well, I'm just going to be feeding my symptoms with medication and that's not going to change 
how I'm going to be. So often we're harmed, we're labeled, we're discarded. Um, and if that's what's going to be happening, if I go to see someone when I'm in crisis and all I'm, all that happens is I'm made to feel bad about myself. I'm given a label sent home with tons of medication and no support and no validation. Guess what? I'm not going to go back. And maybe I don't have medical, maybe I don't have um, health insurance, so I can't even go. Or maybe I don't have transportation, or maybe I'm unhoused, so I can't even deal with those things. So I think there are so many barriers to it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's hard to do the work. It's hard to come to the point where you ask for help, right? It's hard to like go and show up and say, you know, I'm having these you know, thoughts, maybe I'm having suicidal ideations because it's so stigmatized in society. It's so stigmatized when it should be normalized, we should be able to talk about it because it's not abnormal to have suicidal ideations for anyone, but a particularly adopted, displaced, fostered and trafficked people. It makes complete sense. But if I'm continually not seen, if I'm continually not heard and validated, guess what? I'm just going to become silent. I'm not going to go and maybe I don't have support. You know, so it's like, I think it's so hard to show up. And then when we're harmed and we're discarded and we're labeled and pathologized, that's going to be the barrier right there. Or if when I go to the doctor, the basic form is not affirming, inclusive and safe, where it's like family medical history. And that's really activating for me to go do that. They just need a box that says adopted. You can check, you know, like, and so I don't have to go through all of this because for me, it takes, it's hard enough to go there, let alone do this form and then have to do like a song and dance, dance with the professional when they ask me about my adoption. And then maybe they tell me like they adopted or they tell me like how much they love adoption. Well, I don't, I'm not coming to hear their opinions on an experience they've never lived. I'm here because I, you know, broke my foot, right? Yeah. So that's like traumatic for me to have to go each time. So guess what? I'm not going to go when I can get away with it or even when I can't get away with it because I just don't want to deal with the harm. I don't want to deal with not feeling affirmed or inclus included or safe. So I think it's, I think it's more, I think it's more like the systems. Yeah, there are people that it's hard to go, but I think the systems just reinforce how much they don't want to support us and how much they do not support us. Because if a form is that uninviting and that traumatic, I mean, I talk to people all the time, and I'm sure you've heard this too, and this is true for me too, a barrier to seeking help, whether it's mental, whether it's medical, whether it's going to the dentist or whatever, is the form. I don't want to fill out the form. Yeah. You know, and it's like, I do this all the time. You know, I do this, this is what I do for a living. But even for me, that's like another level of trauma. And I'm like, it's hard enough for me to go to the doctors, but this makes it even harder. And I'm not guaranteed, I'm probably not going to see someone that has a level of understanding that, a, like a basic level of understanding that adoption is trauma. So how much how much do I want to extend to them and educate them? And I like when I'm in my personal life, I want to like live my personal life. I want to go see an expert because they're an expert. I don't want to be like educating. You know, we all deserve time off. They're not paying me for it. So it's like, it's, it's just exhausting the levels of things we have to navigate just to go to like a simple appointment. So I think that's like one of the biggest barriers. And yes, people don't want to go, but I don't see that in my the people that I work with, most of them 
are like, I've been harmed by so many providers. Um, I haven't been validated. They're like kind of at the end of their rope with like seeking help because they've never been validated at all. Yeah, yeah I, that's so important. Thank you for saying that. Because I know that I feel like that training to not seek support is because we've been met with so many negative consequences for attempting to mm -hmm. and if you're a mental health professional and you listen to this or to another one of you know lena's um, talks that she does in so many you know different contexts you are hurting people if mm -hmm. you have adopted people coming to your practice and you are saying things to them like oh that's wonderful or good for you or uh, you're so lucky, or I'm, you know, oh, that's just so nice that pe these people took you in. And so many of us have been turned away from seeking help by those kind of platitudes and attitudes. Like I have a list on one of my blog posts about questions to ask if you're seeking a therapist. And one mm -hmm. of them is, what are your thoughts on adoption? and not do you like adoption or do you not like adoption because I don't want you to ask them a yes or no question no I yeah. want you to be able to mm -hmm. listen to what their thoughts are and if they say oh well I think adoption is wonderful and I think you know so many children benefit from being adopted and blah -dee, blah -dee, blah don't go to that therapist don't waste mm -hmm. your time mm -hmm. if your therapist says what my like sixth one right to like six <laughs> of them uh, if he says or she says or they say well it you know adoption is loss mm -hmm. okay you found somebody you might be able to work with even if yeah. they're not adopted if they at least recognize that it's that it, there's loss yeah I think that's awesome yeah I mean that's one of the things that I say too the other things I, I want to add to that are I always ask and suggest that people ask if the person, the potential therapist or provider, are they adopted or are they an adoptive parent? Mm -hmm. And if they're an adoptive parent, for me, that's going to be a no. But for other people, maybe they can work with that. If they're adopted, I'll ask them, you know, what have you done, you know, to deal and you know with that? And if it's someone that hasn't really explored and connected with other adoptive people and doesn't understand adoption as trauma and all of these things, then that's probably not going to be someone that I want to work with. And then I'd also make sure if they're a provider, have you ever worked in the adoption child welfare industry? And then I'd ask their role if they have, and if they were someone that's brokering adoptions or taking children away that might be a no, but that's also, it could be a yes, depending on how did they reconcile that if they realized the harm they had done, you know, and they're actively working and speaking out against it, that could maybe be a yes. So I think those are important things. So we don't get like four months into it. And then they tell me that they're adapting. Yeah. For me, that would be heartbreaking and not a place that I'd want to be but maybe for someone else. I mean, we all have different levels of who we can work with. So someone might be able to work with an adoptive parent. Someone might be able to work with someone that, you know, worked has worked in the system. It's just different for each person. But I think, like you said, it's important to ask these questions so we don't get into it 
And then we're like, okay, this isn't going to work. And then we have to go find somebody else. So it's important that we're proactive when we're seeking out support. It's a hard thing and it's an unfair thing that we have to do that. But I noticed that people aren't necessarily transparent in terms of their identities and who they are. So I feel like if you are a provider and you're going to be seeing adoptive people and you're adopted and you're an adoptive parent, you need to list both of those. Yeah. I you know, you need important. to list it. Yeah. And thank you. I'm taking notes because I'm just going to add. Your awesome. Questions. Awesome. Because we're there's some of us who are trying to put together this list of questions for people to ask when they're, because they don't, maybe don't realize that this is a job interview. You're interviewing this mental health care professional to see if they can do the job that you need them to do so it's okay to ask exactly. lots of questions definitely and, you know and I think I one of the things that struck me about what you were saying earlier is this like continuous act of erasure mm-hmm. that you know we're erased at our birth you know for the most part there are the rare like open like actually open adoptions not what they're calling open adoptions yeah exactly <laughs> but i you know for the most part you're pretty much erased at the point of adoption and then as you go through life you're just like continually erased you're not when you go to the doctor and there's that form that you have to confront and the reaction that you may get from the healthcare professional. It's not up to us, or it shouldn't be up to us to have to educate all of these people on providing services to a population that they should receive the education mm-hmm. to help. And that's another problem too. Like mm-hmm. you, you have a master's in social work, mm-hmm. I have a degree in psychology and a drug and alcohol rehabilitation counselor certificate. And I used to do intakes at a rehab facility mm-hmm. and nowhere on our three page long mm-hmm. form was were there any questions about are you adopted that's ridiculous I mean that's like because we're overrepresented there so it's like probably 50 percent of the people you're seeing you know um are fall into that category so yeah I mean there's not training there's still not training in school and I went to social work I got my degree a long, long time ago, right? And so now that I've become, you know, this is what I'm doing. The people that I've gone to school with have kind of come back to me and are following me because it's like we none of us learn this in school. And imagine how many adopted people they've seen. You know, I think I graduated in 98. No, no, 2000. So 2000. So the pe- how many people have you seen in the last 23 years that are adopted? That's a lot of people, right? And so it's like, The systems, the institutions are not educating, which is hard. And we're, you know, the onus is not on us to educate, right? And it's like, if we do, it's like we should be compensated for that education. I'm trying to fill in like the gaps, right? And I'm only one person. I can't do everything, right? So I have to focus. We all have to focus. None of us can solve everything. We kind of have to pick what we're going to do, right? And do that. So I created a class on transracial adoption because I feel like that is an area where we need to advocate, you know, for 
the most marginalized group, right? So let's advocate for that and then we help everybody. So I created this course because people don't understand what transracial adoption is. So I talked about the impacts, what is transracial adoption? What are the impacts? What are What is the research saying and what can we do where can we go from here? How can we help transracial adopted and displaced people? And I had providers in there and that's my goal. And I taught that class twice. So I had people, you know, that worked with CPS that worked for CPS that um, are therapists, you know, so it's like, I want to give them that information so they can be the best provider out there because they don't know what they don't know. And a lot of them feel they've been practicing for a long time and they feel like they know a lot, but it's like, we never stop learning. Like I don't, you and I together don't know everything about adoption and none of it, there's so much to be learned and we're adopted and this is the work we do. So imagine providers who have no information. So I think anything that can be done in terms of that is going to be a step in the right direction. If they can understand the basics, you know, and they can understand what the impacts are and they can see, you know, how can they help? And I think one responsible thing they could do, and I say this to the people in the class, working with adopted and displaced people is going to be different. You know, it's going to be a different, this is not, this is not therapy light. This is not like, um, life coaching. And I'm not minimizing that, but this is, this is trauma. This is grief. This is loss. So you really have to be, if you're okay, working in this realm, you know, this is heavy work. How are you going to take care of yourself? How are you going to continue learning? And if that's not something that you're committed to, and you want to do therapy, more of a light approach, then these are, this is not the, these are not the people you should be working with. And please make that choice. Cause I don't want you to go and do a half job of it you know, not do the job that your clients deserve. I want people to know like this is going to be a different therapy than something else. So people have to understand that are providing what they're getting into so they can really be safe and affirming and inclusive. And yes, people are going to make mistakes as therapists. I've made mistakes as, you know, being a support person. I've made mistakes presenting. I've made mistakes training, but we're here to learn, right? But if I'm not even interested in working with this population, then I should know that up front and be able to say that. Because I, you know, as providers, we have to work with the people we want to. We have to work with the people we're committed to and passionate about. We can't work with everybody, right? We're not going to be for everybody. So I want providers to also know this is what you need to do. And if you're not up to the course, you're not up to this, then you should not see adopted displaced people. I'm really glad that you say that. I really think that that is so crucial. I know that one of the things that we were told repeatedly in our in our coursework for the drug and alcohol counseling was that you needed to know your own problem areas, like the the things mm -hmm. that you absolutely can't work with, the things that you have your own biases and mm -hmm. issues with and you shouldn't work with those people because yep. one, it's not healthy for you personally. It's going to, you know, encourage burnout and, mm -hmm. and your own mental health. And then you're also going to hurt the people that you're supposed to be there to help. And everybody yeah. has something. So self-awareness is a big part of providing services. And if, you know, and if you're not willing to own what that is, then maybe this is not the work that you should be yeah. you should be doing. You know, I've never really heard 
of anybody saying to professionals in the field that they're working in, mm -hmm. you need to know this stuff and you need to understand it. So I'm really glad that you're doing that. And I, I know that there are some social workers who are adopted and who are asking for the National Social Workers Association, you're one mm -hmm. of them, mm -hmm. to uh, take a stand on mm -hmm. transracial adoption. Um, and as you said, if you help the most marginalized mm -hmm. of a marginalized group, you can help everyone in that group. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that's, I think that's really important. So thank you. You're <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Joe, it's <sighs> there's so much we could talk about so much we definitely could exactly yes but I think in closing because I'm terrible at editing everybody already knows this and trying to make this into two separate episodes I don't want to lose any of it by yeah. my clumsiness with technology <laughs> so so I I think maybe in wrapping up I is there something that I mean, you've, you've said so many really important things and I'm so thankful for you sharing this time with me today. Uh, is there anything that you really would like to leave the listeners with, whether it's um, adopted people or, and because of this is talking about, you know, suicide, I, I would like to take a moment and just, uh, you know, we're going to include the link to your class that you taught mm -hmm. and to some of the, the different hotlines and resources that are available for people. I, is there anything like positive that you can say about like prevention and then maybe whatever you would like to leave the listeners with after that? Sure, sure, definitely. We can we can have a whole conversation about the lines, and I maybe we could include a caveat if we recommend the lines or we post those numbers because the nine eight eight number and the suicide hotline those numbers participate in policing. So if I call the number and I say I have a plan, I have you know I'm doing X Y and Z. I don't want to be graphic on here, and yeah. they the person I'm talking to assesses me at risk of myself. So they have to call the police and EMS and they show up at my house and I'm in crisis and I'm a, a brown person. I run the risk of being shot, being harmed, being forced into care. And when we force people into care, it's not really care, right? You're not, you don't care for oh. someone if you force it. I'm yeah. so say I'm, I'm going to be admitted to the psychiatric hospital and I'm going to be there until they think I'm ready to leave. And what that does to me is it takes away any kind of my rights. My consent is not required. There's actually a book that was just published called Your Consent is Not Required. It talks about this. But that trauma that happens in the hospital, when I'm finally sent home, released, whatever you want to call it, that's going to increase my risk of suicide attempt or death from suicide. So I think those lines, it's great that they're there, but they can be harmful in terms of the policing. So when we recommend them, we want the listeners or people that are calling to know that they could, the police could be involved and they could be forced into care. So I know 
like the trans line is a safe line. They don't do that. They're more of a warm line. And I think the black health line also does not do that force policing. But the 988 number, there is research that was posted. It's by the same person who wrote your consent is not required. It's Rob. And it begins with a W. I can't remember his full name. He posted an article on Madden America. It's on Twitter. And he talks about how... Um, forced treatment, if you will, has been increased with it from the 988 number. Wow. I was so aware of that. Yeah. So that's a whole big conversation that we could talk about, but I'm always leery in terms of that. And I hate to leave people with no resources in terms of lines, but I want people to be aware if you do call and you disclose too much, you could be at risk of the police being called their EMS. And maybe that's a great thing for you, but it could be a traumatizing thing for you too. Um, oh, that is really hard. I I was not aware of that because I would think, I think that's one of those things where the, that boundary, as far as like, it's a, they're usually staffed by volunteers, mm-hmm. but then if they're connected to policing and they're doing Mm -hmm. this without providing informed consent Mm -hmm. to the person who's calling Mm -hmm. I mean that's a really I mean it's mandated reporting so it's like if I'm you know any kind of teacher or therapist or doctor and someone comes to me and they're you know say that they're at risk for suicide or they're going to harm somebody else or you know these things I have to report that and I think that's the same kind of thing that they have to do but I don't want people to think that that's always going to be a safe situation because you call I'm not saying don't call I'm not saying do call but I think it's smart to know what can happen if you do call I would say um, I really would like a warm line, not a crisis line. I would like a line, a warm line for adopted and displaced people that's staffed by adopted and displaced people that have been, that have gone through a rigorous training that can answer the lines where there's not police involvement or forced treatment involved. That's something that I think would be helpful. Um, I would say in terms of leaving people with, you know, a message, I'd say, you know, you're not alone. You know, if you have suicidal ideations or you've been living with them for years or you've had a suicide attempt, there's nothing wrong with you. You know, it makes sense. You know, this is such a messed up situation and lived experience where it's like it makes sense that this would be the reality. So there's nothing wrong with you at all. It's society, it's the systems, it's the providers, it's the policing, it's the reporting, it's the surveilling, right? It's not, we're not looked at. It's not, society doesn't look at us and say, what happened to you? They look at us and look at symptoms. They look at us and look at, you know, these things and then diagnose us. And those diagnoses, I'm not saying I'm against them, but a lot of times grief can imitate depression, you know, a lot of the symptoms can be other things. So it's like, we really need to take a bigger look than symptoms. So there's nothing, nothing wrong with you. I would say, follow me on social media. You can always connect with me. I see people. I'm willing to work on a sliding scale because I don't want capitalism to be, you know, the the reason I can't support you or we can't work together. Um, there's other adaptive people out there that are talking about, you know, different areas that you might be relating to. So try and connect with other adaptive people online. 
lots of podcasts. I mean, there's the connection is big. There's um, adoptee Twitter, lots of adopted people sharing their, you know, lived experience. There's adoptee, I said TikTok, there's adoptee Twitter too. There's Facebook, there's LinkedIn. There's lots of ways to connect now. And once you start following people post events, so there's ways to get connected so we don't feel so alone because we we're meant to feel alone, but we're truly, we're not alone, right? I mean, there's someone else dealing with what you're do dealing with. I mean, we're all connected here somehow. And I guess like the last, I mean, I could go on forever, but I want to leave the listeners with adoptions and adverse childhood experience, adoptions, complex trauma, adoptions, a risk factor for suicide, for mental health struggles, for addiction, um, adoptions, preventable trauma, and adoption is intergenerational trauma. So it's not just going to impact us. It's going to impact generations of people. We need to be thinking about children and families and how we can support them and not thinking about adults and their fantasies of parenting a child or having a child because they can't have a child. Thank you. Thank you You're so welcome. much for sharing that. And thank you so much for sharing of yourself today and your time. And thank you to the listeners for spending this couple of hours with us almost. <laughs> we we can talk and keep talking. It's such a it's such a complex issue and there's so many facets and you covered so many things today. So thank you so much. And this has been another episode of the Adoption Files. <laughs>